This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hello, and welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Maria Mazuffer, and you're listening to episode 113. Today, I'm excited to share my conversation with Jane Hong. Jane suffered an unimaginable tragedy four years ago when her daughter, Rebecca, a British diplomat, was raped and murdered by a taxi driver in Lebanon where she was working as a humanitarian to support refugees. Jane will talk us through how she made a choice in the face of her grief to build her daughter's legacy and support vulnerable women around the world. I hope as you hear Jane's story, you're as inspired as I am by her resilience, strength, and determination to keep moving forward. Thank you. All right. Well, Jane, good morning in Hong Kong. Welcome to the Illuminate podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Mariam, and may I wish you a happy new year. Yes, thank you so much. Happy new year. Thank you for joining me bright and early. I hope you've had some coffee or tea for for our chat today. I have, and I've had some English porridge too, very old fashioned, but uh, that's what gets me through the cold winter months. Oh, that sounds delicious. Well, I love that you're already on the next morning to me, so I find that fascinating. (laughs) Um, I hope it's a great day. Um, Yes, uh, the, the, the skies are clear. The air is fresh, but it's not raining. It's not grey. So, oh, great! Um, it's a good day. Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, hopefully, I'll have that to look forward to in uh, in New York tomorrow as well. Um, but thank you so much for joining, Jane. I'm so excited for our conversation today. Um, you know, Me I too. first yes, well, good. You know, I first learned about your work with your nonprofit organization. A little while ago, um, especially kind of at the height of the Syrian refugee crisis. But before we talk about um, your nonprofit, Becky's Bathhouse, and really what led you to that work, I wanted to take a step back and learn a little bit more about you um, and for our listeners to learn more about you. You know, from what I know so far, You've lived a very rich life. So I, you know, you you grew up in the UK, moved to Hong Kong in your twenties, and has you know trained as a classical musician and are a writer and author. And I'm I'm fascinated by by those aspects of your life. And I'd I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your background and how those experiences have really enriched your life. I am English, but you're right. I came to Hong Kong in my 20s at the time when it was a British colony. I came as a viola player with the Hong Kong Philharmonic Orchestra. 
um, and with my first husband, who was a lawyer. Um, and this city just presented so many opportunities. I mean, you could say, you know, I was a relatively big fish in a relatively small pond, unlike in the UK, because there were opportunities presented to me that I would never have been offered in my home country. So look, I've had a very, yes, varied um, career. I mean, I, I went, I worked in academia, I worked in broadcasting, radio and TV. Um, and then I thought, no, I'm going to make lots of money here. This is a place to make money. And actually, I wasn't that happy with my uh, with my first husband. And um, so then I threw myself into business, uh, into retail. I worked for the body shop. Um, I think you know the body shop in the states. Right? Yes, yes, I love the body <laughs> shop. It's it's not as as ubiquitous as it used to be, but I miss it. Right. Well. Um, as, as you almost certainly know, it was founded by Anita Roddick, um, who was an Italian immigrant from the UK, actually. Um, but I loved her, her, her ethos, fresh, natural products for women and empowering women and um, trade not age, you know, helping women rather than just giving the money. Look, it was a fabulous job. Yeah. Um, and I worked for the woman who had the franchise for Hong Kong and Macau, which is another enclave, um, just 20 miles by boat from here. So it was a great job and I learned many things. And then I thought, wow, I better, I better do an MBA to kind of uh, really get good at this job. But then anyway, look, I've had a varied career. Um, later on, 10 years later, I went into teaching because my children were at British boarding school and I wanted to be free for the holidays. Um, and then when I was about 50, I thought, well, what really turns me on? I mean, I love teaching. I love the part um, of helping children, being with children. Um, but it was physically so tiring and I'd always hankered to write books. So I thought, OK, I'm going to I'm going to scale down my life. Um, I'm going to live more simply, move out of the big city um, and I'm going to write. And that's what I was doing happily for about uh, 12 years. Wow. And Jane, I love that. I love sort of the varied career experiences you had and you know it really sounds like a lot of fearlessness around that how did you have that where you know where did you cultivate that from of you know maybe not uh, not being averse to risk or maybe even what other people might think of those decisions funnily enough Mariam, i'm being asked that question more and more and i had i didn't think about it at the time i just saw opportunities um, and I, and I, I always, I suppose I haven't had a feeling of failure. Um, but I wonder whether the origins of my, uh, well, yeah, of my, of my lack of fear is having attended a specialist music school in the UK from 12 till 17. Um, we, it was extremely disciplined timetable we had to practice our instruments three hours a day um and we the, the what i find so enjoyable about the music about music making and the music industry is that 
it's so exacting. You can play your instrument or you cannot, right? And you have to get on a stage and perform. Right. Um, so you don't, it, there's no, you don't have to work with other people so much. You know, you're not dependent on so many people. You are your own person. Um, so I think that has given me um, an outlook, yes, of just kind of feeling I'm on my own. <laughs> um, take it or leave it. Um, okay, you know, if you fluff up a, a few notes on stage, you know, you know that you won't be invited again, uh, <laughs> or you know, you'll perform somewhere else. But but I think it, I think my independence, if you like, um, has come from that more than anything else. And so it sounds like that that early experience of having to have that discipline and focus probably, am I right in thinking, just made you empowered to think, okay, well, I can replicate this and do this again, whether that's teaching or writing, I know how to be a disciplined person. Who am I to, to tell definitively why <laughs> I, I am like this? But I think, I think this is the reason, mm. yes. Um, because let's take writing for a moment. Um, look, it's been a fabulous ride. I, I came to the States, of Vermont College of Fine Arts, to do um, an MFA um, for two years. And one thing that was instilled in us very early on is if you're a writer, just write. And if you write, you can say, I am a writer. Right. So please, you know, turn up. And just pen to paper, you know, keyboard to computer, whatever, um, just do it. And that is the way most people seem to progress and improve. Yeah. And why? Just the, you know, mm. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please. I was going to say, why writing? What, what spoke to you about that medium? Books were really important to me as a child. I was a bit of a bookworm. They were important because they opened other worlds to me. Um, so I was excited about life. I got to know people through books, I think. Mm. Um, and um, I, I suppose uh, as a child, I did write creatively. You know, I kept a diary and... I was excited when we had creative writing at school. <laughs> and what my brothers and sister tell me is that um, when we were very young, um, my parents, there were four, four children, my parents took us to a camping, wild camping for about a month every summer. Looking back, I'm oh, so wow. happy we did that. In the UK? No yes, in the UK with the Lovely. rain and the barring sheep, you know. <laughs> Um, uh, but we, but there was no entertainment. We had to entertain ourselves. I'm sounding very old fashioned now, aren't I? But what, what I used to tell story, I'm the eldest. I used to tell stories to my brother and sister every night. Um, you know, so our, our mother would say, I get into bed. Isn't it? So we'd get into our sleeping bags and it's cold. So we were kind of snuggled up a little bit. And um, and then they say, OK, Jane, you know, what, what's next? So I had this running story and, um, 
yeah, a couple of them commented when I did start writing my 50s, saying, well, of course you want to do that, you know, and I really like your stories when you, <laughs> so. So you've always uh, been a storyteller. Well, it, yes, it was a childhood. Um, I liked books and I liked telling stories as a child. And when I was 50, I thought, okay, as you do in your fifth, many people do in your 50s, gosh, you know, life is short. Um, life is finite. What am I going to do? And I thought, I want to have a really good go at writing well. Mm. And I mean, you have, you've uh, published several books, am I right? I have. Um, I <laughs> They're published by Hong Kong publishers, which mm. are not as, uh, let's say, exacting as US publishers. I haven't sent out my work to international publishers, mainly because they're not very good. No, I don't know. The point is that um, Hong Kong informs my writing. I've been here for so long mm. now. And I care very much about Chinese children, Chinese culture. Um, it fascinates me. I'm very curious by it. So I, I find myself writing for local children rather than um, sort of middle class, comfortable expats, if you like. Right. Although they, those kind do feature in my stories. So there's quite a local audience. Um, but watch this space. Um, yeah. I am now writing things of a more global uh interest let's say okay excellent yes. and so the books that you've written to date have been for more of a um, children's audience yes the mfa i did at vcfa was for children's uh writing uh writing for children i started with a young adult novel um it was a, a vampire novel um, set in Hong Kong. And Ooh, as I think, interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, I actually, I had to do a lot of research into a Chinese religion called Taoism um, because the Taoists have elaborate ceremonies at the time of death when people die. And um, yes, I had to link it into this story about how dead people became vampires. But anyway, uh, I started with that and then I, I, I regressed, if you like, into writing for younger and younger. And quite frankly, now in my 60s, I'm thinking, what, how on earth can I write a YA novel? I'm so out of touch with the local culture. So, I, sorry, the, the age group, you know, and the young, the life of teenagers so i have written a number of junior fiction books uh, we call it in england um and then more recently I, I find myself writing more picture books for very young children oh lovely you know it's so interesting jane learning more about your kind of uh you know varied experiences it makes me understand even more um, the work mm. that you are currently focused on uh, with your nonprofit, because it sounds like for a long time you've been a teacher and a storyteller and someone who cares very deeply about children and caring for other people. Um, and it was really interesting even to mm. hear a little bit about your experience at the body shop um, because you know as you were talking about it I remembered that it was one of the early 
sort of retailers that had a real giving back mission. Um, yes. Uh, you know, that on, on, on the environment, on women, that was a real pioneer in that space, actually. It was. It was unique. And Anita Roddick spawned a whole host of, of industries which have taken off since. Uh, ethical trading, you know, uh, uh, no, no chemicals in products, no animal testing for makeup. Um, and yes, the, uh, the, the stance of giving a, a week, a day, a month, I should say, a day, a month, all staff had to go and volunteer somewhere in a charity. Wow. Um, and this food. was, you know, I remember it in the 90s. So, you know, that was, believe it or not, I a long time ago now, which, yeah, which surprised yeah, that's my, me. That's my age. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, yeah, so qu quite a pioneer in that space. But, you know, it's, it's interesting for me to learn all of these facets of your background um, mm. and, you know, kind of turning to the charity that you founded, Becky's Bathhouse, which I think mm. in many ways combines a lot of these experiences. But of course, how you got to that place is um, mm. not a very mm. sort of um, easy journey for you. Look, my life changed in the blink of an eye <clears throat> when I got a phone call on the 17th of December, 2000. And 17 my life has never been the same and it never will be because basically that call told me or at least I found out in the course of an, the next hour that my 30 year old second daughter had been murdered in Lebanon where she was working for the British government as a humanitarian worker and she was working with Syrian refugees and Palestinian refugees, as well as disadvantaged Lebanese. And ironically, her killer was a disadvantaged Lebanese, a taxi driver. Um, so unimaginable. Uh, yeah. But it's happened to me. It's happened to our family. It's been a really difficult four years now. Um, and one thing became very clear very early on is that I didn't want my daughter's death to be in vain. I wanted her to be remembered. I wanted someone to carry on her humanitarian work. And as things panned out, it became more and more obvious that that was going to be me rather than any other family member. Um, so I haven't been writing very much. Actually, I have. I've written a 75,000 word memoir about the experience of losing my daughter. Wow. And actually, yeah, and actually um, recounting her life for the record as a mother. You know, right. I know so much that no one does. Of course. In, and in her latter life. Yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say, you know, Jane, it's an un unimaginable experience and loss that you've had, not only as a mother, but dealing with this death in such a horrific and tragic way. And I was really 
struck by, you know, you mentioned it's only just been four years, which is really a, a blink of an eye, really, when we when we think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, for any of us who have experienced loss, um, let alone such a such a such a tragic loss that you have, you know, I'm really struck by how as a grieving mother in such a short period of time, were you able to find that inner strength and motivation to take this desire to, you know, want to keep your daughter's work and memory alive? Um, how did you find that inner strength and motivation to do that while in the depths of grief? Mm, big question, Mariam. <laughs> yes. Well, <clears throat> what is it? I suppose. Mm, I'll just share a quick anecdote. Sure. At the funeral, many people came. There were a hundred more people than we anticipated. Um, and many people of Becky's age, you know, in their thirties, absolutely devastated what had happened. But one of those women <clears throat> was a woman from Norway. And she said, <laughs> innocently, really, because she was only in her 30s, she said, oh, someone in our uh, our next door neighbor lost her son and she's never been the same. Oh, you know, she, she wears black and she never comes out of her house. You know, oh, I hope you're going to be OK. <laughs> oh, gosh. And, um, <laughs> I think that was the, fir- the first kind of glimmer let's say, of light. I think it was like, I have a choice here. I could just cry forever. You know, I lost my daughter. Yes. And that's, you know, you see even now, just for a millisecond thinking that, it's so sad. It's so sad and bad what happened to her. So heavy, yeah. But but, of what use am I to my family, to the world? To myself, you know, if I'm just going to, just to feel so, so full of despair. And, um, so the, the, the upside of that, right? I think of dualities more and more. I have, this has been a spiritual path for me um, for many reasons, but you know, the upside of that is that crack in the light concept. The opposite of, of extreme grief is joy and Mm. what would give me joy and what would give me joy more than anything is for me to see towards the end of my life that Becky's is still remembered and how can I do that I can carry on what she was doing and I had no experience of working with charities right. and the charitable world. It's been such an eye opener. I mean, yeah. But um, but look, it's been it's been it's given my life meaning and purpose. There you go. If and I, as long as I can live with meaning and purpose, then I'm going to be okay, and I'm going to be able to keep uh, to build her legacy successfully. Yeah, and that is is a beautiful sort of moment of realization, it sounds like, to decide. And it is no easy decision to make to not want to wallow in your grief. And you would not be faulted for wanting to do that for quite a while, 
given that experience, but it sounds like, you know, you made an active decision, like you said, to want to live your life with purpose because you're the one who's here to carry on your daughter's legacy. And that is such a beautiful thing. And can you tell us about, you know, how Becky's bathhouse then came to be um, and where it is? Because you're right that you have never, you know, founded a nonprofit or had it come to life before until this very challenging moment for your life. And what I was also curious about is, you know, often people will have a seedling of an idea, uh, whether they're going through grief or just, you know, living their ordinary mm. life, but not everyone brings those ideas to fruition. So how did you take this idea of wanting to carry on your daughter's work with refugees and actually make something wonderful happen? Okay, I suppose when I lost her, I turned to religious books and this has been a spiritual path. Um, uh, and I was kind of wallowing in that. Um, and that gave me hope in terms of, you know, I'm alive, she's dead, mind over matter. You know, you can control your thoughts, Buddhist, you know, that the how important right. we have to control our thoughts in order to say, uh, determine what comes out of our mouths and then what we do. So I was kind of in this, you know, deep stuff. And then I got, a, again, a phone call. And this was from um, a friend of a friend of Becky's. And he was a builder and British man and he had heard about Becky because many people did it it went global the news um and um he said look I've almost finished completing a shower house for Syrian refugees on the island of Lesbos in Greece um I he, he was telling me um that he'd lost a sister to a drunk driver his life had never been the same but he he found it very very therapeutic let's say to be doing this in the name of his sister and wow. um and then he said oh and would you maybe we can write rebecca's name on the wall because i have a friend who knew becky and she you know he's really sad about it so i thought oh okay so that was the that was the germ of the idea so then i went and cutting a long story short, we, we launched, we relaunched really, um, as Becky's Bathhouse in 2019. Um, and I took full control at that stage. Um, and at the beginning, we were an organisation that catered mainly for Syrian refugees, that the majority of women and children coming through we're from that country. Um, we provide hot showers, hot tea, clean clothes, facility to wash clothes, very simple, essential services to give some women some dignity. Um, and Jane, can and, you can you um, place us in Lesbos? So it's an island off the coast of Greece. And so Tell us a little bit about who these refugees are and what their circumstances are when they come to Becky's bathhouse. Okay, so Lesbos is a small island in the north of Greece. 
Um, it's 20 minutes boat ride to Turkey. So the news that you hear of Middle Eastern people trying to escape their own countries and coming to the EU countries are often coming to Lesbos. It's the closest um, in terms of a boat ride to a place um, that belongs to the EU. Um, so our bathhouse is about five minutes drive away from the camp. It's the worst in Europe. When you read about how terrible and appalling the camps are in EU, people are thinking about Lesbos, Greece. Um, what, what, what makes in, those, yeah, I was going to say, what, what makes the camp so appalling in, in its conditions? People are living in tents. Um, the, the tents are erected on mud. Um, two years ago, there were no showers. Wow. There were no showers. Um, and the toilets were ghastly. Um, the food is bad. The people are poor, um, there's fighting, um, biblical scenes at winter, if you go at winter time, it's, it hasn't got any better, except that um, here we are in 2022 now, the Greek government, for a variety of reasons, have made some significant changes. They've moved a lot of refugees up to Athens, where uh, People can be processed better, let's say. Um, refugees are not coming so much because they've heard from their relatives how bad the conditions are and how hopeless it is to get asylum these days. And alas, there are pushbacks at sea these days, which are illegal. But, you know, you get these people on the little boats trying to come over and they're just pushed back to Turkey. So right. the situation has changed considerably, but the the um, and interestingly, um, the majority of women that we serve now are Afghans. Um, they haven't come from the recent <clears throat> news, let's say, you know, the recent right. problem. Um, but they, they, they were coming before because there's, yeah, the, the conditions in Afghanistan, even before the Taliban, um, were very bad. So we get Afghans and we get more North Africans now and, and sort of Somalians, uh, people from the Congo. So there's quite a mixture of people. And so when so, people, but, yeah. you know, are arriving probably from very long, harrowing journeys to even reach Lesbos, then they're put in these very difficult, dire living conditions but your uh, Becky's bathhouse serves as a haven, particularly for women and children, where, as you mentioned, you provide hot showers. And I believe, you know, you have kind of play areas for children as well. Yeah. Just, you know, describe to us what is available for the people that come to Becky's bathhouse. And also, how do they hear about it? How do they get there? Very good. So we pick them up in a van. Um, when they arrive, um, there is a place they can sit and have tea and some fruit. They are welcomed by a multinational team. This is part of Becky's Bathhouse I love um, because we try to empower 
refugee women who were there. You know, we offered them uh, actually proper God, uh, job contracts. Um, and then we have an in, two uh, international women at present, a, a British um, and a Canadian. Before then, we did have an American. Um, and uh, and volunteers, international volunteers. So the team look after these women and children. Some will play with the children. Some will accompany the 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 women to the shower place and kind of show them what clothes we have. Maybe collect their washing and put it in the in the in the machine. So, and we do about there are, there are, at the moment there are four shifts a day. Um, so the women and children can stay for about an hour and a half and then we have to tell them sorry. Right. Uh, we want to give the opportunity to someone else. So um, how I many people say, are you able to serve hmm. in a day, do you think? Oh, OK. Well, um, <clears throat> we average about uh, 70 a day. Wow. Right. It's so quite a lot. over the years, yeah, we have, ha- we have, we have supported... I would say getting on for 14,000 women and children now. It's incredible. I don't, oh, yeah, well, thank you. It's very meaningful to me. And if I'm ever feeling sad, I just go onto our Instagram or our (laughs) Facebook page or read our newsletter and it cheers me up immediately. Yep. Of Um, course. It's very meaningful. And and it's lovely. We we try, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, tell me about... What about, you know, you know, because you're providing such specific services in such a unique way, what is the experience that you're trying to provide to these women and children? What is that mission for Becky's Bathhouse? We're not unique, to be fair. There are other charities that that, uh, seek to do the same, but uh, in a sentence, we are offering the women and children respite from appalling conditions by offering them dignity and respect. Yeah. And you can't put um, a price on that. You really can't. That is what they seem to value the most. It's a safe space. It's a sanctuary. It's very simple, you know, in it. First world, we're thinking of spas and this and that. I mean, these women are happy with, to say, a clean and uh, a new bra and a hairdryer. I mean, that for them is is such a luxury. There's no electricity in the camps. Wow. Um, so, um, Becky's bathhouse. I I don't want to talk too much about it because I should say we're in a in a in a period of transition. Um, it's. The numbers have dropped in in the camp, um, the numbers of refugees. There are now showers in the uh, hot showers in the camp. Um, COVID has challenged our operation, let's say, and now with Omicron, um, goodness knows what's going to happen. So for a variety of reasons, uh, Becky's Bathhouse is going to move to an American NGO who's also, which is also operating on Lesbos. Um, and that is called When We Band Together. The founders are in New York. <laughs> And um, there's great synergy between us. Uh, They are also providing a sanctuary for women and children. um, They have a larger facility than us. Um, 
they have a, a, a an excellent, strong local manager, which will help Becky's Bathhouse enormously, I think, because for many reasons, I just can't be there myself. Um, <clears throat> to, you know, and I really need day-to-day -day management. Um, so we are moving. By the end of March, we, um, we will have effected the move. And um, you, yeah, ironically, um, Americans might hear more about Becky's Bathhouse because we were, we're going to align some of our social media with them. Oh, that's fantastic. And it sounds like that, <laughs> it sounds like that will give, you know, the mission and the service that you're trying to provide um, even more sort of attention and growth potentially. So that that is probably very welcome news. I'm extremely happy about it. Um, I'm very confident it's going to um, be a good step move, a good, a good positive step forward. Um, I should say person, personally um, that one reason for doing this is I want to free up more of my time. Um, so the move will be a little going back to uh, our core operations in Lesbos, showers and, and clothing, um, and will it'll be managed in Greece. And I will have more time, therefore, to do to, for two other projects that I'm devoted to um, in honour of my daughter. The, yes, the, the... Please, please, <laughs> please share. <laughs> Drum roll. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, dear. It's a bit audacious, isn't it, to speak out like this when they're still little seedlings? But no, I. 2022 is going to be a good year for me, I think, um, in terms of uh, fulfilling other driving missions, let's say. Very early on, when I heard about Becky, um, I had this thought, this recurring thought, that if she'd been wearing a panic button, her, probably her life would have been saved. Right. Um, she was in a car, the car was close to a road. Um, okay, the killer grabbed her bag so she didn't have her phone, but if she'd had a panic button on her body that which could have emitted a really high decibel sounding sound, somebody may have heard it. Um, so, okay, in summary, I have been, last year, I was working with a Chinese manufacturer to create um, a, a, a panic button called Becky's Button. Oh, and wow. it, yep, it's very simple. I mean, there's not too many technological features, um, especially this first prototype. It's literally just the sound very very 130 i think we've got 130 decibels sound now it's rechargeable it's made in um recyclable plastic you can attach it to a bra or a piece of underwear or clothing oh, wow so it's small which is very it, helpful it, exactly mariam it's mm. i I did a lot of, well, I didn't do it, but a friend did a lot of research and it's smaller than anything you can see on the market. The interesting thing about the market is that 
everything you see on the internet is it's commercial, commercially driven. Right. For me, I'm keeping it really simple. I'm saying as long as my money lasts, <laughs> Becky's money, um, I'm going to offer, I'm going to manufacture them and I'm going to, I want them distributed for free for very vulnerable women in very dangerous situations and i want to work with ngos i want them to do all the you know the planning the distribution the education right. um but i will as a i will donate i will donate these buttons so our first order will arrive uh next month oh my goodness that's incredible Yay! so they're so they're ready uh to be distributed or is it is it the prototypes or where are you in the journey Three thousand of uh of the foot what do they call like stage one um right um button will be available and um i'm working with someone in the uk to distribute them start distributing in camps in the uk and also we did give it we had a pilot scheme in greece um in the autumn of, of last year um so the um yep there are some ngos that are interested to um to use our product because in the survey interestingly one finding right across the board it was a professional survey is all the women actually everyone said this could be help me a lot and make me feel safer in the camp Right, which I which I imagine, given the conditions that you describe, not only is it difficult to live, but probably not very safe for women, especially women, women on their own. So I can imagine how important something like this will be. Exactly. Single women, they are very unsafe. Um, there is a, a perennial problem of people just with knives, going in with knives and robbing out from a tent you know you can't you can't even lock shut a door you know right so um that yeah they are dangerous camps and so this is this is a very kind of exciting new project i think to you know it, it sounds like you know becky's bathhouse to start with it was really carrying on your daughter's work with refugees and what she was really passionate about and giving back to you know, the people that she really cared about and sounds like dedicated a yes. lot of her, her life to. And now this next phase of, you know, keeping her legacy is kind of trying to solve one of the problems that women face, which is violence against women. Violence against women. Um, someone told me very early on that... Um, I needed to kind of really think what or how I wanted to continue her legacy. In my mind, Becky's bathhouse was very much that was something Becky was doing. That's in honor of her. But in but what really empowers me is that thought of Becky's button um, becoming a, a, a well-known product to protect women and to empower women. And also, I mean, the third project that I've that I've been working on, it, it's also US based, interestingly. I mean, I say also in terms of Becky's Bathhouse going forward is going to be probably best, best known in the US rather than anywhere else through when we band together. But my 
yeah, this other project goes back to my roots, really, which is writing. And I'm working with um, a friend, fellow writer that I met in Vermont. Um, you know her. She's called Heather Demetrios. Yes. And um, we are setting up a Rebecca Dyke scholarship. Um, we plan to organize our first workshop in Minnesota. Um, it will be, the scholarship will be offered to women who want to talk about extreme violence or femicide for children. All right, that's the that's the kind of expertise. Yep, and um, and of course this workshop will be open to outside people as well. You know, who want to write about violent themes for children. Um, we are, as we speak, um, working on setting up a faculty. Uh, we want a diverse faculty. We want a therapist there as well because writing traumatic things triggers it, you know, and traumatizes so we need some like professional help there um if needs be so exciting i very I'm, exciting. I'm very yeah i'm i'm very happy about the progress we've made so far let's say i mean these are these are great and will that be launching in 2022 as well Autumn, fall, sorry, fall, 2022. <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing. Oh, that that's so great. I have to say, Jane, the more I speak to you, the more moved I really am by how you have taken unimaginable pain and turned it into these, you know, all these different wonderful ways of giving back to the world. If you had the, you know, opportunity, which, which you might do with some of our listeners to speak to someone who is really struggling with loss and grief right now, you know, what, what tools could you um, suggest to them, even something small to, to help them even uh, move forward with their day? And this is very relevant, is it not? Because of COVID, I mean... A million cases yesterday alone of Omicron. I mean, how many of those are going to be fatal? It's most appalling time for so many, isn't it? And I must say, as a person that, you know, has suffered extreme loss, I, I think of those people, um, you know, before I'd think, as oh, someone was murdered. Oh, poor person. Now I, I think immediately, think, well, what about the, the love, you know, the loved ones? we are the ones that have to continue living it's really hard i think i would say reach out to to religious books i'm not saying you know become a christian or a zen buddhist or whatever i'm saying see what the spiritual books say um i would say be kind to yourself be kind to people around you um, don't hesitate to reach out and share your pain. And I suppose also to try, this is just something that's worked for me, is to look at things very objectively. Um, like, you know, for example, the statistics are there. 10 parents an hour you lose their daughters um, 
to wow. murder in the world, somewhere in the world. So we're not alone. I mean, even I, I hadn't heard that statistic before. I that floors me actually. I think that remembering that it's unfortunately not as not as uncommon as as you might think, and there is strength in those numbers and strength in sharing. I think that's that's really sage advice, Jane. Thank you. Jane, as we, um, you know, we always like to ask our guests three questions. And so I would love to hear from you. Who illuminates your life? Uh, I suppose it's Becky more than anything, anyone now. Um, I get in that zone where I see my energy as, um, as a form of strong light, some kind of force which mm. invigorates me, gets me up in the morning. So she it's she her. keeps you going. Yeah. You you feel her with you. I do. Um, I I I look. I'm an amateur, but I, I you know in the morning I try to do a little meditation. I try to do a little yoga. These things have really really helped me, and I can get in this zone of just feeling mm. a connection with her, and it's a love. It's a feeling of love. It's a feeling. That's what I strive for these days. If I've got that feeling, then I know everything's going to be okay. And that feeling That's is like feeling connected. And what uh, if there was if there was a book that you could recommend that you really think could make a difference One in people's lives? What would that be? Going back to coming back to is the Book of Joy by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. Um, I'm not saying, you know, it's the book, um, but it's something, it's a book that is simply put, it has humour, it has uh, simple remedies, let's say, of turning grief or sadness, despair, all those negative emotions, even anger, yeah, changing anger, into joy um and you hear the two men great men talking although of course they're voiced by someone else um there's a the, the dalai lama and desmond tutu get, got together um over a week or so i think and they had a third party that was kind of um monitoring things and, and um, keeping things in order but um I really enjoy that book and I listen to it and I read it. Oh, many times. I, you know, I've heard so much about it and I think there's so much history about that historic meeting between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu and I've never read it or listened to it, but I think this is a sign that um, I need to do that because that, <laughs> that, that sounds um, really amazing by two very wise men. And my final question to you is, what is your message to the world? Goodness. Small question. <laughs> okay, my message, and I think it's uh, relevant and appropriate in these appalling, chaotic times we're living in, is trauma traumatizes, but it can also transform. Mm. So, so many of us are suffering for so many different reasons. It is definitely uh, a, a challenging time for many people. So, you know, what's the option? Can we just wallow in self-pity? 
um, and sorrow? Or can we think, right, I'm going to do what I can just to improve the world in any small way? You know, even if it's saying thank you to the to the grocers. Do you have grocers? Yeah. You know what I mean? Just really, really simple things. Um, self-pity is self-importance. I feel that increasingly these days. You know, who are we? You know, the world is huge, the billions of us, and we've got real problems here, guys. You know, climate change and, you know, potentially lack of clean water, food, you know, jobs. So, oh, it's a difficult time. But but this is a moment that we, if we really, really thought through and, and, and worked together, you know, as human being to human being, this could be a period of great transformation. Yeah, I and so... Embrace that transformation, like you even said earlier, make that decision, make that choice. It's a choice. I had, yes, I could see it very clearly after the death of my daughter. And um, and I think it's relevant to yeah, to people, who, you know, who are just like stuck. What can we do? You know, this feeling of hopelessness. Right. It doesn't help. It doesn't help anyone. It certainly doesn't help yourself. Right. Well, that is a wonderful message. And I thank you so much, Jane, for sharing your story and being such a light and really, I have to say, an inspiration um, to choose transformation and to, to keep moving. So thank you so much, Jane. Well, dear Miriam, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I found it very illuminating talking <laughs> to you. And um, <laughs> thank you thank so much. You. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about Jane's projects, you can find links in the show notes. And if you want to donate to Becky's Bathhouse, you can find them at beckysbathhouse.org. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like our podcast, rate it, share the episode with a friend, and please let us know what you thought. You can find us at the Illuminate Podcast on Instagram, And if you want even more exclusive content, you can find us at patreon.com slash the illuminate pod. We'd love to have you as part of our community there. And we're always looking for more ideas and feedback. So we'd love to hear from you. Thank you.